I'm I'm familiar with the shows. Right. I just don't know who's in them. Right. Except totally. for um the guy who plays Brian Cranston. Breaking Bad. Yes. <laughs> the, the guy who plays Breaking Bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework? the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and boy, it's the day before the election. You better go vote. You better have voted, recognizing that this will come out after the election. Uh, And I'm a fun little bundle of nerves. Uh, With me, as always, is my co-host, probably in a similar state. Uh, I'm Martha Sullivan, and I am using frantic internet activity to escape from my feelings of anxiety, Mm -hmm. which in and of itself is a really troubling sentence for me to have said. (laughs) You're also using recording a podcast for an hour, hour and a half to, you know, at least take your mind off it a little bit somehow. I'm channeling my anxiety into trying to become a movie influencer on the internet. Ooh, yes, you have your spooky movies list, your hundred greatest scary moments from 2010s yes and um due to life so the initial plan for this had been to release a chunk of a a year of the decade every year and then finishing with the 2020s on halloween um life happened and it turns out that it's really hard to crank one of these out every day (laughs) so my next issue will go out tonight um and it is 2017. All right. Would you like to guess on some of the movies present on this list? I don't even know what movies came out in 2017. Uh, if I do a quick look of movies that came out in 2017, I might guess. <laughs> <laughs> movies Cheater. 2017. Um, uh, Mother oh, shows up. I assume that the snowman will make an appearance. Oh, no. <laughs> da, da. Didn't even register. Uh, yeah, that's because it was barely a movie. Uh, yes, Mother! So. Yes. Yes, Mother. Um, a ghost story? The Shape of Water. Oh, no, I didn't have that one on. I, I, I was I was wondering if 2017 was Shape of Water year. Okay. It was. Also, the first chapter of It. Mm. Uh, get Out? A uh, year before. Oh, okay. Uh, it's it's pos- uh, killing of a sacred deer. Yes. Okay. The bye bye man. No, I, I assume although... it's a movie where a guy says bye bye or something. See, this is why I crowdsource so much of this list. Is I didn't I don't didn't see most of these movies, so I needed other people to to tell me what should be on this list and. Right. Yeah. And and like, make it. looking at this, it's like the Bye Bye Man. The cover looks like it's a horror movie. I know nothing about it, and I don't know if it oh, was I, good. Yeah, I think it's some kind of like supernatural slasher. Yeah, that's what the cover looked like. Cool. I am putting 47 meters down on this list because it's my list and I get to do what I want. <laughs> and if that means putting giant sharks on my 100 scariest movie moments list, well, you know. That's what that means. This is your classic pod person situation where if you didn't have giant sharks on your list, we would know that it was not you making the list. It would be some doppelganger. It's true. Um, 
I'm still trying to work out what scene from the giant crocodile movie Crawl I want to uh, include later in this list because <laughs> I am a sucker for giant monster movies. Mm-hmm. And, and giant aquatic monsters, especially. You know, it's because water is scary. It's because the ocean is terrifying. <laughs> Uh, Well, our topic today is horror, but has zero aquatic water monsters. Um, We are talking about folk horror today. We'll be getting into what that means, and we'll be looking at sort of one of the early canon examples, uh, the 1973 Wicker Man, and one of the new Renaissance examples, last year's Midsommar. Uh, But before we get into that, it's only fair that we share with you what is stuck in our heads this week. So, Martha... What is stuck in your head, whatever piece of pop culture it is that you are uh, thinking about, want to talk about, have recently consumed, etc. I want to see the baby. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we watched the first episode of The Mandalorian Season 2 recently, and I'm so glad that the child is back in my life. I can take or leave literally any other character in that show, Um, but I would die for Baby Yoda. (laughs) I will say that I think... I, I don't know how I feel about them bringing in like really great actors for one episode. Um, Timothy Oliphant is in the season premiere of season two and he's great. And I don't know if he will be back. He may have been just a, a one episode deal. I really want him to be back. Timothy Oliphant has aged like a fine wine. Uh, and more importantly, if you cast any actor from Deadwood and you put them in the new space Western, I'm there for it. So having Timothy Oliphant just play his character from Deadwood, but now on Tatooine, oh, yeah, give me a show about him. Do you mean Justified, or did Timothy Oliphant also play a sheriff in Deadwood? He's the sheriff in Deadwood. I I haven't seen Justified. Um, Oh. Yeah, but I love Deadwood, so... so. So he is he is very much getting typecast now. He, he has a type, and you know what? Based out of two of the three things I've seen, it's a good type. Oh, yeah. I'm not complaining. I just think it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I also recently saw that episode, and it's great. More, more Mando, more better. Um, I heard that uh, Pedro Pascal ended up walking off the set halfway through the season. Oh. I don't know what happened with that. Um, I don't know. I there are some things about this new season that don't taste great. Hmm. Um, but I'm a simple person. By by new things or things about this new season, you're talking about just like behind the scenes things that you've heard. Yeah. Hmm. I'm very glad I've heard nothing about the behind the scenes. Although a very recent Observer article says that no Pedro Pascal isn't leaving the Mandalorian, so I don't know what I saw. Hmm. This is what happens when I hear like secondhand gossip that I then deliver to you without sourcing. <laughs> uh, also, when I don't know, I I would reckon that filming during COVID is a horrible and tense and bad, uh, you know, experience, and so fears and tensions might be high. Oh, yeah. I don't know that they filmed during COVID, though. I think this one was pretty wrapped up. You think this is in the can by February? Yes. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, All idle speculation and gossip anyway, uh, which I know is what you, the listener, is here for. Um, 
because this is our Hollywood <laughs> yeah. gossip rag. We are an accredited news source. We are not. Do not. <laughs> yeah, we're not. Don't sue me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what is stuck in my head this week is the new album out by Knox Fortune. Uh, Knox Fortune is my brother. Uh, however, I would be listening to this album on repeat even if he was not related to me. Uh, the album is called Stockchild Wonder, and it is great indie pop, very summery feel, a really good way to take your mind off of, um, you know, everything that's going on right now. Uh, singles out are um, uh, include Gemini, which is just a delightful song, um, Shirtless, which for the Oak Parkers in the audience has a reference to Lindbergh Park in it, uh, oh. and uh, sin uh, Sincerity, which is sort of the title track song. Um, it's got some stuff on here that sounds like Fleet Foxes, some stuff on here that sounds like early aughts indie rock, uh, lots of good indie pop on here in general. Um, definitely worth a listen. That's Stock Child Wonder by Knox Fortune. A lot of those keywords sounded good to me. Yeah, I'd, I'd say give it a listen. Also, way to name drop your family. Yeah, I mean, like, this is, I'm legally obligated, right, <laughs> to, like, push this everywhere I can. But as I said at the top, uh, even if he was not related to me, I would still be like, this album is great, and it's stuck in my head. Um, <laughs> I, I have been listening to it a lot on repeat. Uh, and that would not be the case if the music wasn't good. Fair. All right, so we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to be talking about folk horror. Welcome back. So this episode is dropping shortly after Halloween. It's been that spooky time of month. So we decided to be looking at folk horror, a sort of amorphous genre. It's a little bit hard to pin down what is or isn't folk horror, although many traditional folk horror movies uh, have definite tropes that they all fall into. We're looking at one of the original folk horror movies, the 1973 movie Wicker Man, and also one of the most recent folk horror movies, 2019's Midsommar. Uh, Martha, tell us about Wicker Man. Uh, so The Wicker Man is a 1973 movie directed by Robin Hardy, uh, written by Anthony Schaefer. It stars Edward Woodard as Sergeant Howie. Christopher Lee, looking young and spry as the Lord Summer Isle. I'm, I gotta uh, stop Diane you right Sigal. there. Christopher Lee, looking young and spry, actually 55, and sounding exactly like Saruman. So, uh, very confused well, when I'm I looking at a young Saruman, and it's this exact same voice. No vocal cracking or anything. Also the same eyebrows. Yes, yes indeed. And once he was in costume for the parade, I was like, oh, it's Saruman. <laughs> uh, but he was looking real good for 55. Seriously? Yeah. Um, Britt Eklund as Willow, Diane Salento as Miss Rose, and then a bunch more uh, British and Scottish actors who I um, am not familiar with. Um, but The Wicker Man is the story of Sergeant Howie, who lands on a 
a remote island off the coast of Scotland looking for a missing girl. Uh, and the longer he looks for her, the weirder stuff on the island gets. Uh, and it becomes very clear that this is a um, practicing pagan uh, village. And they have, spoiler alert, lured Sergeant Howie to the island with the express purpose of sacrificing him so that their crops can go grow green and healthy for the next year. Uh, Christopher Lee plays the weirdly male patriarch of this whole island, which I only say because there are very, very strong matriarch vibes happening all over the island, except then we find out that it's run by a man. So, you know, that's cool. <laughs> um, this movie was remade in 2006 with Nicolas Cage, but we're not talking about that right now. Uh, it is also... Uh, frequently grouped with two other movies as being sort of the genesis of the folk horror cinematic movement. Um, the, the FHCU? Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Wicker Man, along with uh, 1968's Witchfinder General and 1971's The Blood on Satan's Claw, uh, both of which also feature a very strong theme of puritanical Christianity versus uh, dirty paganism, which I'm sure we will get more into as we talk about this movie. Um, Pete, had you seen this movie before? I had not seen this movie movie before, and I'm so glad you assigned <laughs> it. It was a lovely and delightful Halloween time movie to watch. Um, as we were talking, I love this movie so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad you assigned it. Um. As we were talking about before we started the episode, uh, less than an hour and a half. Awesome. It begins with dude landing on the island. No run up to that. No nonsense. Just getting right into it. Awesome. Um, the music mm -hmm. in it is incredible. Uh, just delightful English folk music. Um, and then the movie is, is strange in all the ways it should be. Uh, there, there was a lot I had to dissect with it. Uh, we'll get into this more, but I had no idea what the movie's politics were. Um, even knowing that they were going to sacrifice the policeman in a giant wicker man cage to their pagan gods, I spent most of the movie on the side of the islanders and being like, yo, Scottish policeman, you're being a jerk. You kind of deserve to be sacrificed in a giant wicker man contraption. Um, well, well. And, and, and obviously that's going rather far, uh, but it... I don't know. I I was coming at it from a very interesting standpoint, which I'm sure we will uh, discuss in a moment. Um, uh, Christopher Lee was incredible. Um, I do know that the uh, the the screenwriter and the director uh, did a lot of research into paganism, or so they claimed, um, to try to make it as quote unquote accurate as possible. But one of their major sources was. Um, Burroughs' The Golden Bough, which was a classic work of, uh, you know, religious studies and, and sort of pagan traditions back in the 70s and when it was released, but now is kind of discredited. Um, it's definitely popular among people who like to think about folk magic and, and such, but uh, academically doesn't hold a lot of weight. So it's kind of interesting that, like, knowing that that was one of the major sources for uh, Summer Isles paganism. Did you like the little note at the beginning of the movie? I did. Where the 
the filmmakers thanked the uh, citizens of Summer Isle for letting them film their customs. (laughs) I thought that was great. Yes. I really enjoy folklore as a genre. Um, And The Wicker Man is such a genesis point for so many of the, like, folk horror cinematic traditions. Yeah. Um, That it's just... You can draw such a direct line from The Wicker Man to, like, a whole bunch of other stuff. The other the other thing that I almost um almost assigned for homework is a book called Harvest Home mm. by Thomas Tryon, which is about a middle class um family. It was written in 1973, so same year that this movie came out. Mm-hmm. And it's about um a family in Connecticut that move out into the country and into this little tiny town that has all of these uh, like harvest related traditions leading up to this um, big harvest celebration called harvest home that we never really find out exactly what it is, but the closer we get to it, the more ominous it starts sounding. I'm uh, so first, Um, first off I'm, um, uh, restraining a joke about Connecticut and they moved out to the country. Uh, I think they started. I think they start in New York and then move to Connecticut. Sure, sure. Um, but also that sounds a lot like uh, my favorite episode of Over the Garden Wall, the one with the pumpkin people. Yes, it's very similar. Um, and the narrator is the dad of the family talking about how he is reacting to all of these, like what he sees as being very outdated out um like very outdated traditions is that more Um, of a like rural rube situation versus like this uh, is a clear like oh those pagans yes yeah no the wicker man i i don't disagree with you i think sergeant howie does have a bug very firmly up his butt and it's all it's kind of like dude i get that you're a christian they clearly don't care please stop when he asks where your preacher is, I yeah. was like, dude, read the room. Well, and like telling the teacher, like, I shall report you to the authorities. It's like, what? <laughs> what are we doing here? Like, come on. It's, Let them live their like life. They, also, they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, um, I, I get that you're trying to solve the murder of this girl, and it's both discouraging and strange and suspicious that everyone is like stonewalling you like crazy. But, you know, let them live their life. But also cool motive, still murder. <laughs> um, I'd like to real quick define what we mean by folk horror before we get too far into this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, because you keep referring to it as not a very clear cut genre. And I don't agree with that. Um, I tend to think of folk horror as being very identifiable. Um, so I, I would agree... I, Sorry. I, I would agree in general that like when I hear the term folk horror, there is a clear image in my mind. But looking at TV tropes and some of the examples that they provide, I I think that some definitions cast a much wider net than I necessarily would. Um, well, I don't. First of all, I don't think that urban legend stuff counts as folk horror. I would agree 100 percent. I kind of think a key aspect of folk horror is the clashing of modern or puritanical um sensibilities with very traditional 
traditions. I, I think there's so, this is probably hand in hand with that, but there's always a rural urban sort of div- or yes. not always, but frequently a rural urban uh, divide. Yeah, so we have the quote unquote civilized person or people, um, which I think at the genesis of the tr- uh, the genesis of the genre tended to mean um, Christian or uh, yeah, Christian people, like mm-hmm. as a shorthand for civilized, mm-hmm. um, clashing with people who are uncivilized in the way of they are carrying on and practicing traditions that we consider to be um pagan yeah i was i was trying to think of a more descriptive word like brutish i guess um they are frequently violent Hmm. uh human sacrifice is a big big plot point in a lot of folk horror stuff i i would say it's it's kind of a a blend where there are moments of violence in their traditions and not to downplay that but in general the traditions are very bucolic um you know like dancing around the maypole leaping over the fire like it's very pagan but it's also very um you know genteel rural agrarian fun times until all of a sudden we are at the uh, at a stupa or the uh, wicker man burning or what have you Although even those bucolic stuff typically have a like edge or sheen. But is that edge or sheen there because it's being presented from the perspective of the outsider who will inherently look on it uh, in a, you know, disparaging way? I think so. But I also think that the stories then tend to punish that view. So like the perspective we get is a kind of condescension. Mm hmm. That then, because they are being condescending or feeling superior, it ends up it ends up getting them punished by the end. Yes, agreed. So, like you have you have people that think they know better, which usually ends up getting them killed. And then it's like, even if I don't agree with human sacrifice. You Which let's could've... let's just stipulate that we as a podcast don't agree with human sacrifice. Don't agree with human <laughs> sacrifice, yes. <laughs> um but yeah, it usually through and it usually ends up being through um the the person um like the outsiders it it usually is a direct like directly the... caused by the outsider acting or feeling superior or purposefully not bothering to understand yeah it's all it's almost a hubristic situation yes yes um because we we see in the wicker man sergeant howie and like he's manipulated every step of the way but he also makes a bunch of choices yeah that end up being kind of what ultimately seals his fate well and he does not endear himself to the population in any way um, or in my case, to the audience in any way. <laughs> and I am curious if in 1973, and especially in 1973 Britain, if he was a much more sympathetic character then. Um, I think he was still supposed to be sort of a caricature. I think he was still supposed to be like, this is an exaggeratedly puritanical mm-hmm. police officer. Because the 70s 
Like, th- this is early 70s, which is practically still the 60s. Right. Like, when, I, it, I don't really think he was supposed to be all that sympathetic. Right. You keep using the term puritanical, and I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, as as you mentioned, one of the other films of this genre is the witchfinder general which is literally just a puritan um in terms of the modern renaissance the witch with two w's the vavitch uh is a a a modern staple of folk horror um and that is about literal puritans uh and so I, i do think that puritanical christianity whether literally um or just you know sergeant howie and this who you know can't take the cross out of his bum for two seconds to, uh, you know, treat these people with a modicum of respect or decency as he does his job. Uh, I think that that is sort of an important part of a lot of folk horror. Yeah. And I think that the puritanical nature, like the unyielding Mm -hmm. nature of that is often in contrast to like the, the softer and go with the flow or like of the flesh uh kinds of worship that we see in a lot of pagan mm-hmm. religion and traditions mm-hmm. your fertility um, rights and such yeah like i don't i don't know how accurate the scene was in the movie to any sort of actual worship practice but i did kind of enjoy the sequence where the the group of women is dancing naked around the bonfire mm-hmm. um as a right to um like grant strength and health to a pregnant woman's unborn baby. Mm-hmm. Like that's cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's women being supportive of other women and using like a very feminine kind of magic, uh, in a way that I found pretty, uh, pretty appealing. Jumping the gun a little bit, uh, Midsommar, I think has some excellent examples of, um, like like a a key part of midsummer is sort of like grappling with grief and communal grappling with grief but the uh, the scene where all the women are surrounding uh francis uh, florence Pugh um and are like grieving with her and experiencing the emotions with her i think is very powerful and uh you know a great example of like community in general but also a distinctly female community i think it is really important to a lot of these movies that pagan worship and like a lot of the um history behind that tends to be very matriarchal or like, at the or at the very least um non-patriarchal like if it's not objectively yeah. matriarchal then at least there's a, a balance or an equality between the genders yeah and a lot of horror just horror in general um is related to the fear of femininity like mm-hmm. the women like witches and there's a lot of very strong women in um like werewolf and vampire movies yeah uh, i mean a lot of dracula is the fear of the sexy eastern european man but then it's also a fear of female sexuality in general it's what also leads to the use of werewolves as a metaphor for female puberty, mm-hmm. like something like ginger snaps. Um, yeah, you've got lunar cycles yeah, involved, so. Yeah, the the fear of um, the fear of the feminine, particularly as it is related to witchcraft, mm-hmm. I think is a very strong element of folk horror. Uh, which is also very directly related to themes of like fertility and 
bringing the crops back every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, should we transition to Midsommar and sort of like begin to wrap that into our conversation as well? Yes, please. Cool. Uh, especially considering we've already been doing that. Because <laughs> you just couldn't help yourself. Uh, you know, it, it fit very well in what we were talking about. Um, so Midsommar is a 2019 folk horror film written and directed by Ari Aster and starring Florence Pugh, Jack Reiner, uh, Chidi from The Good Place, uh, and a couple other people. Um, his name is William Jackson Harper, uh, but he will forever be Chidi. Um, it is about a, uh, a college student who has a traumatic experience happen to her in the opening sequence of the film. Um, her sister kills herself and their parents, uh, in a murder-suicide situation. Um, and flash forward six months, uh... Florence Pugh's character sort of invites herself along, gets herself invited along with her uh, horrible boyfriend, her horrible gaslighting boyfriend on his and his college buddies trip to Sweden. Um, they are going to explore the rights of the Harga people, um, of whom one of their college friends is a member. Uh, the Harga are a uh, basically pagan commune collective in Sweden uh, who have a once-every-90-year celebration um, that the anthropology students in the group want to study, and the other people in the group want to have a fun uh, drug adventure in Sweden during the summer. Um, shenanigans ensue, and it ends with uh, Danny, uh, Florence Pugh's character, um, Processing a lot of the grief that she has been uh, dealing with, uh, with the death of her parents and sister, uh, processing the fact that her boyfriend is a terrible gaslighting human being in the most banal ways possible. Um, lots of good trippy sequences, some moments of shocking violence, um, and a dude ends up in a bear suit in a, in a lodge that's being lit on fire, uh, which means that a major theme between this and The Wicker Man is... Human sacrifice by fire. Yeah. Um. Did I leave anything out on that uh, on that description? Like, there's there's a lot else going on. Florence Pugh um ends up being the May Queen of this society, uh, and and in some ways joins it. I think the implication at the end of the movie is that she just straight up joins the Harga people. I think that that is the intention. Uh. Pele, I think, is the name of their friend. I think so. Who brings them. Yeah, I think that I think that's his intention from the very beginning. Is that he targets her as being the most likely to um want to stay, I well, guess, and at it, the end. It does seem that um so Pele is is their friend, but there are some other young Herga people who have been out in the world and return, and they also bring friends. So I kind of think the the idea here is that everyone's bringing some friends back, and some of them will be sacrificed, and some will get to join. Well, because I think they, they also talk about how um, because they're such a small society, they occasionally do need to bring in, like, fresh blood. Right. Prevent the inbreeding from getting too serious. Yep, that's one of the reasons her boyfriend ends up playing uh, Stud. Stud. <laughs> yes. Which, even though he's terrible, was a super gross and scary scene also. <laughs> well, especially because it's combined with um, Danny, you know, 
having the grieving moment. So it's it's being soundtracked kind of to to her wailing and the the like the women of the the group wailing with her. Right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's you... yeah. She sees it and then runs back to the lodge and breaks down, and the the women in the lodge, um, all kind of sympathy wail with her. Yeah. Sort of like a collective expression of of the emotion she's feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, other than that, you had you had seen this before, correct? I yeah, I watched it last year. I love okay. this movie. Yeah, great. Same. Um, I, I I frequently I I think it is a horror movie in that it is a folk horror movie, but I also think it's more accurate accurately described as a Grimm's fairy tale. Mm, mm-hmm. Um. I, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah, I I would agree with you that I don't think it's a folk or I, I don't think it's a, a horror movie in the traditional sense of the word. I don't know quite how I would classify it otherwise. Not totally sold on Grimm's fairy tale, but I'm not opposed to it. But I I do think that it's it being billed as a horror movie, I think is just because there's no other slot that you know, our culture would put it in currently, but I don't think that's the right slot for it. Well, and if if we look at, you know, the, the very, very basic function of horror is to scare you. Mm-hmm. And this movie is definitely unsettling. Moments of it are terrifying. Um, I think the overall effect is definitely to cause fear of some kind. So in that, in that definition... I think it's fair to call it a horror movie, but I also think that we have so many kind of preconceived notions about what horror means. Yeah. That it's not, it doesn't present as accurate of a um, picture about everything that this movie is doing. Mm-hmm. Like I, it, the, the number one genre I would put this in is a exploration of grief and the processing thereof and, you know, critiquing how our society deals with grief. Sure, but that's not a genre. No, movie. I know, I know that's not a genre, but that's like... just thematically what it's doing, right? Um, how do you feel about the fact that she chooses to kill her boyfriend at the end? Based on the previous like hour and a half of the movie, I'm okay with it. In the same way that I'm okay with uh, Sergeant Howie ended up in the Wicker Man in the end of that movie. Um, in the classic cool story, still getting burned to death in a giant um, pagan bonfire ceremony, um. You know, they're not sympathetic people, and I, for what the movie was, I think it was the correct choice for her to make. Oh yeah, I think what gets lost frequently is that people, and this is not the only movie that people do this with, and it won't be the last, and when I say people, I mean men, um, (laughs) trying to look at this movie through a like realism lens. That's kind of one of the reasons I like using fairy tale as a phrase to describe this movie, because I don't think, I think that if you're trying to look at this movie in terms of what is realistic, uh, you're missing the point. Oh yeah. Because in addition to everything else that it's doing, it's also a breakup revenge fantasy. Yes, absolutely. Um, And he, fully like in that lens he fully deserves everything he gets um chidi is the one who is least deserving of death of the group um 
and uh, yeah, he still gets it. Spoilers. Um, but like it, anyone trying to watch this with a eye for realism, this movie was the most accurate on-screen portrayal of psychedelic drugs I have ever seen. So like that in and of itself should sort of tell you to not go at this with a hyper-realist perspective. We have to sidebar real fast because I think we cut out before my interjection of but Chidi looked at the book and he wasn't supposed to look at the book. Oh, that's what he did. I'd forgotten what he did wrong. Yeah. Um, See, this movie hmm. is also this movie is also such a good critique of the world of academia. Yes. Because two of these people are grad students who are fighting each other over research material and Chidi ends up die he gets killed because he violates one of the few rules that they give him they say don't look at our book and he goes and looks at the book and takes pictures of it yep yep isn't that cheaty that yeah does that? yeah that, that's absolutely cheaty because cheaty's yeah. the cheaty's the real academic and the boyfriend is the one who's just taking cheaty's ideas as right. his own just like just like their other stupid friend who pees on the sacred tree yeah like it, the, the the stupid friend dude. is the one who from the get-go is like well he deserves to die and Terrible boyfriend <laughs> deserves to die. Cheaty, Cheaty's fine until he looks at the book. He looks at the book. Like, and that's, that is such, that is a very strong theme in folk horror is these people that are like, oh, these quaint, uh, you know, traditionalists. I know, like, I'm so superior. I know better than you. You don't. You're terrible. Well, and this Stop. is. Do whatever you want to do. This is a really fun, um, modern take on it you know like th this is the the modern version of folk horror and in the past it was the christians versus the pagans um but now we don't care about christianity in the same way that we did even in the 70s um the idea of a you know a, a puritanical person as the you know in a, a movie other than the the witch where it's literally just actual puritans um like wouldn't scan as well where so what do you do instead you make it the academics the ones who are still looking down but from a different direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's maintaining that sense of superiority mm -hmm. and learning that no matter how you feel, their rituals will kill you just as dead. <laughs> um. So this is huh, okay. So all this conversation is sort of pushing back or or causing me to re-reflect on. An idea I had before we started recording, which is, is folk horror in, inherently conservative in some way? Um, because so much of folk horror structures itself as civilization or modernity versus the unknown, the some sort of a, a non-traditional social structure, um, a new, parentheses, old uh, way of life. And obviously modernity isn't cast in a terribly kind light in these movies but it's the the new social structures the pagans who are always the in the end the ones doing the murdering um so i i sort of wonder if it's if there's sort of an inherent conservatism to it um or perhaps it's just an inherent I, conservatism of horror movies in general i actually think that they tend to be very liberal because while you are correct in that it is the the pagans or the, you know, quote unquote, backcountry people that do the murders, they are punishing the 
conservatives or the Christians or the grad students for looking down on them. So it's a it it's almost they're almost moralistic mm-hmm. in how they are. It's like hubris or lack of respect for other people's traditions is what gets you killed. Hmm. Which... Particularly in Midsummer, where I think that if those kids had made different choices, um, things things would have ended differently. I don't think that's true in The Wicker Man, but I do think it's true in Midsummer. Well, okay, like, so in, in Midsummer, uh, the, the two British students who who were invited along, I think they were also killed, and I don't think they did anything wrong other than try to leave after seeing the Atastupa, right? Oh, maybe. And obviously, like, they're not the focus, and that's kind of the point. Um, it's way more important that the people who transgressed get punished, um, which is just classic. I, I get, yeah. Saying the people who transgress get punished makes this film fully a horror movie, because that is a classic horror movie trope, uh, as specifically explained in Cabin in the Woods. Um, I love that movie, too. Yeah, that is a <laughs> <laughs> that is a great film. Um... But you're right, though, that like sort of the the moral relativism of we are punishing the civilized folks for their transgressions uh, is sort of liberal. Um, I I just feel like it's an easy step from the Wicker Man to like the satanic panic uh, as we can, you know, rally up fear of, you know, our children becoming pagans. Um, That could just be an unfair blaming the movie for other people's use of it and not actually blaming the like and not looking at the source material itself as it is yeah it does it does make me wonder um and i know you posed this question earlier um but what what are the politics of the people who made the wicker man because i could honestly see it going both ways i could see sergeant howie as being intended to be a caricature that we are not supposed to sympathize with Mm -hmm. um but i could also see if it was made by a very conservative group of people how he is actually meant to be an example and i for people i i kind of don't think that that was the intent i don't think it was um the filmmakers did a have said that they have been very intentional at doing as much research into paganism as they could and presenting it as accurately as possible and that to me doesn't scream conservative people trying to present sergeant howie as the hero true yeah you did mention that earlier Mm -hmm. also uh, christopher lee uh, had a serious hand in the production um and i feel like someone in that many hammer horror movies isn't you know (laughs) super conservative (laughs) so someone who also killed nazis uh yeah someone who also killed nazis Ooh, no, Christopher Lee's Antifa. We gotta cancel him now. <laughs> don't you dare. He will he will he will come. See, I, I don't think that it is safe to speak ill of Christopher Lee even in jest, because I don't believe that death would stop him. <laughs> uh that is likely and hopefully true. Man. I really need someone to write the authorized autobiography of that man. I want to know everything about his life. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sure you two have uh, uh, watched many times the Lord of the Rings commentaries. Um, but there was a, a bit in, in The Return of the King where um, Saruman got stabbed in the back. Uh, oh, and he he the, told Peter Jackson how it yes, should sound yes, when a, that happens. Authoritatively. 
Yes, that is Bill's favorite anecdote yeah. from those movies. Yeah, yeah. Bill like... also likes to tell me whenever I say how much I would like to read an authorized biography of uh, Christopher Lee, Bill also likes to tell me about how likely it is that most of his life is still classified. <laughs> and it's like he was in the OSS, so yep, who knows? Um, any other things we want to be talking about in this episode? I had a couple, you know, questions here. We've sort of covered some of them. Um, I guess, why do we think folk horror is kind of having a bit of a resurgence or a a renaissance now? I have a couple of theories about this. Um, I think that feminist horror in general is very, very popular right now. Um, and I think folk horror provides a lot of opportunities to talk about feminism, the intersection of feminism and horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why I think The Witch was so popular. I was going to bring up The Witch. I know a movie that you dislike <laughs> and think is not feminist. Um, I did not care for it. I don't I don't agree that it is a feminist movie. I think that Thomason is railroaded into the choices that she makes. Martha, um, let me explain already... to you why that was a feminist movie. <laughs> I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to reach into this phone. <laughs> but I'm going to do it after you complete your uh, oh, no. divine calling as a poll worker. Oh. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Next episode, we'll just begin with a strangling noise and then only one co-host. <laughs> this will now be a solo podcast. <laughs> um. But yeah, I, I think that I think that feminist stories are really popular in horror right now. And I think that folk horror is a really great has a lot of really great tropes uh, to utilize for that. I I would agree. And I would piggyback onto that, that um, the original, uh, you know, time of folk horror was just post hippies and hippies were very much a sort of like back to the land um movement so you know looking at pagan cults and pagan ideas made a lot of sense i think now obviously we don't have hippies but we do have a lot of spiritualism nature people crunchy granola uh goop uh subscribers which all kind of fits into the idea of you know folk horror paganism um we're not all buying communes, but apparently we're buying jade eggs or what have you, which is sort of in the same realm uh, when it comes down to, uh, you know, fears of paganism and and ritual and, and sort of like fertility rituals and just old rural rituals. Yeah, I'm wondering if cult horror is also part of that reaction. Um, I wouldn't fit, I would not, I would not group cult horror in with folk horror, but when you describe it like that, I think that the popularity of those two things have a lot in common. What would you describe as cult horror? Horror about cults. Well, okay, yes, thank you. But like, what, what is an example of cult horror? Like, that's, I don't, I can't conjure oh, um, in my mind I, an I example watched, of cult horror. I just watched The Invitation. Hmm, okay. Recently. Okay. Gotcha. It's like any cult stuff also, I think of is just a documentary. So, oh, yeah. Um, 
I, I also think that documentaries about cults have kind of fueled our sort of cultural fascination with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I said, I am not trying to group cults in with folk horror, but I think that the Venn diagram overlaps. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, cool. Well, anything else you want to talk about for this topic? Uh, do we want to talk about how great the music was in Wicker Man? Because it was so good. I love a good bagpipe. Yeah. And just like the fiddles, good singing. Very kind of. I love a, a good bar shanty. Bar shanty, especially a ribald one. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> quick, quick sidebar. I was doing wikiing on the Wicker Man. Um, after watching it, uh, the woman who played Willow, uh, was Swedish. Um, had a body double for the nude scenes because she had uh, recently become pregnant. Had a voice double for her singing roles and a different voice dub for her speaking roles which means it's like what why do you have and she had another a fifth person as a stand-in uh just as they're like you know your classic stand-in for lighting and stuff um so it took five people to do this one role (laughs) yeah i think they had her for name recognition i think Britt eckland was a fairly well-known actress at the time this movie was being made. She was so. well, she was in the horror community. I think she was in all those Hammer films, especially. Um, so, oh, so Christopher Lee probably had already worked with her. I, I think I think that's what it was. I just really enjoy the idea that it's like, <laughs> we're going to get someone to dub your voice. We're going to get someone else to dub your singing. We're going to get someone <laughs> as your body double for the nude scenes. Say, and a different person for your so. stand-in. <laughs> right. It's like, we could have condensed this probably to three instead of five. <laughs> or one or one yeah or one <laughs> nah that's crazy talk <laughs> and i i gotta say the singing double i could totally tell but i'm like whatever it's the 70s your sound mixing isn't great i could not really tell there was a voice double for the talking roles so no the adr was pretty good yeah yeah all right well uh seems like that's gonna do it for us for this episode yes correct <laughs> <laughs> great So our next episode is going to be about adapting modern classics. We're going to be watching the 2020 Netflix version of Rebecca, the 2020 Netflix uh, TV show The Haunting of Bly House, and the 2000... Bly Manor? Bly Manor. I guess it is a big manor. Uh, The Haunting of Big Old Spooky House, uh, owned by the Blys, Uh, and the 2019... Um, Greta Gerwig, Little Women. Um, we're looking at these as modern adaptations of fairly modern classics, uh, and just exploring how they've been updated to to fit modern sensibilities. To use the word modern so many times, it loses all meaning. Um, as a quick aside slash forewarning, the following episode is going to involve two longer books, so we're going to present that homework now so that you can get started on it. Uh, We're going to be looking at non-Western genre fiction. That's fantasy and science fiction. Uh, I am assigning The City of Brass by S.A. Chakabotri, uh, which is a Middle Eastern-flavored fantasy. And Martha is assigning The Three-Body Problem by Shishin Liu, a uh, Chinese sci-fi. So we will be sort of exploring genre fiction 
in non uh, from one from non-western perspectives um but recognizing that those are both longer books we wanted to give you the forewarning now I was going to get mad at you for just straight speaking for me, but you pronounced the author's name for the three-body problem way better than I would have. So (laughs) consider yourself forgiven. Uh, I do apologize, and that's also because I've done enough uh, overdubbing of what our homeworks would be that that's just how I'm rolling at this point. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can find this podcast. uh, You're currently listening to it, so you found it. Uh, but you can find it on any podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, what have you. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. And uh, you can find us on Facebook by searching for Did You Do Your Homework? will pop right up. Uh, you should also maybe just delete your Twitter, though, or your Facebook, though, because, you know, Facebook's bad. Um, you can email us Definitely. at... Definitely also delete Twitter. <laughs> uh, I've been trying to be on Twitter less and... Uh, it's I'm on it less. Uh, <laughs> I turned off I turned off notifications for it so I don't get notified on my phone anymore, which honestly was a really good idea. Oh, I I did that years ago. A plus would recommend. Um, you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at DYDYH podcast. Um, Martha, where can people find you? Uh, if you search Magical Martha in your favorite search engine, you will find me at many places, uh, including my tiny letter newsletter that I have been publishing more in the last week than I have in the past six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the aforesaid. Yes. We were saying the exact same thing. Movie moments. Yep. 2017 is going up tonight, uh, which means I've got three more issues until it's done. Um, so, you know, might be done by Friday. Who can say, <laughs> um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, uh, posting a lot of Guinea pig photos recently. My girls turned five this month. Oh, happy birthday to them. We got birthday notices from their vet, which was very cute. <laughs> and your Twitter is private these days. So people would need to request to follow yes cool it is temporarily it was temporarily not private while i tried to solicit um scary movie opinions from people i wasn't friends with but it is back on private now mm-hmm. uh, and how about the other podcast that you do on this same feed uh that one's called love ya which i do with your wife Marin. you do we alternate what? between i do right <laughs> she's podcasting behind your back um we alternate between talking about an adult rom-com or a teen movie. Uh, our Halloween episode, which just went up, is on Hocus Pocus. And I don't know that I could tell you the title of our next movie if he paid me. So you'll have to ask Marin about what movie we're doing next. <laughs> uh, I do know that the last episode was a good one because there was some rank disagreement, which always leads to a good episode. Um, and also fairly good analysis on it. Uh I edit those shows, and I should know what you're doing next, but I also can't tell you. So Yeah, it's a Ricky Gervais rom-com of some kind. Oh, yeah, he's like a ghost or something? Maybe, that might be spoilers? I don't know. (laughs) Spookless in Seattle, perhaps? Uh, That's not what it's called. Um, (laughs) uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture, and hopefully having a much better time 
you know, by the time this episode drops than I currently am on Twitter. And that is going to do it for this episode. We will talk to you in two weeks when we are exploring adapting modern classics. And until then, class dismissed. Cool. <laughs> you cut out right in the middle of saying class dismissed. Well, and then I paused waiting for you to say something. And then I said, cool. And then there was silence. So I'm like, well, I know what happened here. <laughs>